Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 109, Reflections Even the greatest artifact can be defeated by a counter-artifact that is lesser, but specialized. That was what the defense professor had told Harry after dropping the true cloak to pool in fuliginous folds near Harry's shoes. The mirror of perfect reflection has power over what is reflected within it, and that power is said to be unchallengeable. But since the true cloak of invisibility produces a perfect absence of image, it should evade this principle rather than challenging it. There had followed a series of questions in Parseltongue establishing that Harry currently did not intend to do anything stupid or try to run away, and further reminders that Professor Quirrell could sense him and had spells to detect the cloak and was holding hostage hundreds of lives, plus Hermione. Then Harry was told to don the cloak, open the door that lay beyond the quenched fires, and advance through the door into the final chamber, as Professor Quirrell stood well back, outside of that door's sight. The last chamber was illuminated in lights of soft gold, and the stone walls were of gentle white and faced with marble. In the center of the room stood a simple and unornamented golden frame, and within the frame was a portal to another gold-illuminated room, beyond whose door which lay another potions chamber. That was what Harry's brain told him. The mirror's transformation of light was so perfect that conscious thought was required to deduce that the room inside the frame was only a reflection rather than a portal, though it might have been easier to intuit if Harry hadn't been invisible just then. The mirror did not touch the ground. The golden frame had no feet. It didn't look like it was hovering. It looked like it was fixed in place, more solid and more motionless than the walls themselves, like it was nailed to the reference frame of the Earth's motion. Is the mirror there? Is it moving? came Professor Quirrell's commanding voice from the potions chamber. Is there? Harry hissed back. Not moving. Again, tones of command rang forth. Walk around to the back of the mirror. From behind, the golden frame appeared solid, showing no reflections, and Harry said so in parcel tongue. Now take off your cloak. Report to me at once if the mirror moves to face you. Harry took off his cloak. The mirror remained nailed to the reference frame of Earth's motion, and Harry reported this. Shortly after, there came a hissing and seething, and a balefire phoenix melted through the marble wall behind Harry, the ambient light in the room taking on a red tinge as it entered. Professor Quirrell followed behind it, walking out of the new-made corridor that had been carved, his black formal shoes unharmed by the red-glowing molten surface beneath. Well, that is one possible trap averted. And now... Now we will think of possible strategies for retrieving the stone from the mirror, and you will try them, for I prefer not to let my own image be reflected. I give you fair warning, this is the part that may prove tedious. I take it this isn't a problem you can solve with fiendfire? Ha! 
Professor Quirrell gestured. The Balefire Phoenix moved forward in a rush of crimson terror, the red light casting writhing shadows on the remaining marble walls. Harry jumped back before he could think. The dreadful dark red blaze rushed past Professor Quirrell, surged into the golden back of the mirror, and disappeared as fast as it touched the gold. Then the fire was gone, and the room was tinged scarlet no more. There was no scratch upon the golden surface, no glow to mark the absorption of heat. The mirror had simply remained in place, untouched. Chills went down Harry's spine. If he'd been playing Dungeons and & Dragons, and the dungeon master had reported that result, Harry would have suspected a mental illusion and rolled to disbelieve. Upon the center of the golden back had appeared a sequence of runes in no known alphabet, black absences of light in small lines and curves, arranged in a level, horizontal row. The thought occurred to Harry that some minor concealing illusion had been consumed in the fiend fire, a far lesser enchantment that had been added to prevent children from seeing those letters. How old is this mirror? Nobody knows, Mr. Potter. The defense professor reached out his fingers toward the runes, a look of something like reverence on his face, but his fingers did not touch the gold. But my guess is the same as yours, I think. It is said, in certain legends that may or may not be fabrications, that this mirror reflects itself perfectly, and therefore its existence is absolutely stable. So stable that the mirror was able to survive when every other effect of Atlantis was undone, all its consequences severed from time. You can see why I was amused when you suggested fiend fire. The defense professor let his hand fall. Even in the middle of everything else, Harry felt the awe if that was true. The golden frame gleamed no brighter than before for all the revelation but you could imagine it going back, and back, into a civilization that had been made to never be. What does the mirror do, exactly? An excellent question. The answer is in the runes that are written upon the mirror's golden frame. Read them to me. They're not in any alphabet I recognize. They look like randomly oriented chicken scratches drawn by Tolkien elves. Read them anyway. Is not dangerous. The runes say, Noitelav delato parche tner hakrui tu bekafrui ton nawachsi. Harry stopped, feeling more prickles at his spine. Harry knew what the rune for Noitelav meant. It meant Noitelav. And the next rune said to delato the Noitelav until it reached parche then keep the part that was both Tner and Hawk. That belief felt like knowledge, like he could have answered yes with confident authority if someone asked him whether the Tan Wu was Rui or Bekafrui. It was just that when Harry tried to relate those concepts to any other concepts, he drew a blank. Do you understand what words mean, boy? Don't think so. Professor Quirrell gave a soft exhalation, his eyes not leaving the golden frame. 
I had wondered if perhaps the words of false comprehension might be understood to a student of muggle science. Apparently not. Maybe, Harry began. Really, Ravenclaw? said Slytherin. You're pulling this now? Maybe I could try again to understand the words, if I knew more about the mirror? said Harry's Ravenclaw part, which had assumed direct control. Professor Quirrell's lips quirked up. As with most ancient things, scholars have written down enough lies that it is hard to be sure of anything by now. It is definite that the mirror is at least as old as Merlin, for it is known that Merlin used it as a tool. It is also known that after his death, Merlin left written instructions that the mirror did not need to be sealed away, despite it having certain powers that might normally cause one to worry. He wrote that, given how painstakingly the mirror had been crafted to not destroy the world, it would be easier to destroy the world using a lump of cheese. This statement struck Harry as not entirely reassuring. Certain other facts about the mirror are attested by famous wizards who were reasonably skeptical, and whose word has otherwise proven reliable. The mirror's most characteristic power is to create alternate realms of existence, though these realms are only as large in size as what can be seen within the mirror. It is known that people and other objects can be stored therein. It is claimed by several authorities that the mirror alone, of all magics, possesses a true moral orientation, though I am not sure what that could mean in practical terms. I would expect moralists to call the Cruciatus Curse by their name of evil, and the Patronus Charm by their name of good. I cannot guess what a moralist would think was any more moral than that. But it is claimed, for example, that phoenixes came into our world from a realm that was evoked inside this mirror. Words like jeepers and what his parents would have termed inappropriate language were all running through Harry's head, none very coherently, as he stared at the golden back of the mirror. I have wandered the world and encountered many stories that are not often heard. Most of them seemed to me to be lies, but a few had the ring of history rather than storytelling. Upon a wall of metal, in a place where no one had come for centuries, I found written the claim that some Atlanteans foresaw their world's end, and sought to create a device of great power to avert the inevitable catastrophe. If that device had been completed, the story claimed, it would have become an absolutely stable existence that could withstand the channeling of unlimited magic in order to grant wishes. And also, this was said to be the vastly harder task. The device would somehow avert the inevitable catastrophes any sane person would expect to follow from that premise. The aspect I found interesting was that, according to the tale writ upon those metal plates, the rest of Atlantis ignored this project and went upon their ways. It was sometimes praised as a noble public endeavor, but nearly all other Atlanteans found more important things to do on any given day than help. 
Even the Atlantean nobles ignored the prospect of somebody other than themselves obtaining unchallengeable power, which a less experienced cynic might expect to catch their attention. With relatively little support, the tiny handful of would-be makers of this device labored under working conditions that were not so much dramatically arduous as pointlessly annoying. Eventually, time ran out, and Atlantis was destroyed with the device still far from complete. I recognize certain echoes of my own experience that one does not usually see invented in mere tales. A twist in the dry smile. But perhaps that is merely my own preference for one tale among a hundred other legends. You perceive, however, the echo of Merlin's statement about the mirror's creators shaping it to not destroy the world. Most importantly for our purposes, it may explain why the mirror would have the previously unknown capability that Dumbledore or Purnell seems to have evoked, of showing any person who steps before it an illusion of a world in which one of their desires has been fulfilled. It is the sort of sensible precaution you can imagine someone building into a wish-granting creation meant to not go horribly wrong. Wow, Harry whispered and meant it. This was magic with a capital M. The sort of magic that appeared in So You Want to Be a Wizard, not just a collection of random physics-violating things you could do with a wand. Professor Quirrell gestured at the golden back. The final property upon which most tales agree is that whatever the unknown means of commanding the mirror, of that key there are no plausible accounts. The mirror's instructions cannot be shaped to react to individual people. So it is not possible for Purnell to command this mirror, only give the stone to Purnell. Dumbledore cannot state, only give the stone to one who wishes to give it to Nicholas Flamel. There is in the mirror a blindness such as philosophers have attributed to ideal justice. It must treat all who come before it by the same rule, whatever rule may be in force. Thus, there must be some rule for reaching the stone's hiding place which anyone can invoke. And now you see why you, called the boy who lived, shall implement whatever strategies the two of us devise for it was said that this thing possesses a moral orientation, and it may have been given commands reflecting the same. I am well aware that on conventional terms you are said to be good, just as I am said to be evil. Professor Quirrell smiled rather darkly. So, as our first attempt, though not our last, rest assured, let us see what this mirror makes of your attempt to retrieve the stone in order to save the life of Hermione Granger and hundreds of your fellow students. And the first version of that plan, said Harry, who was beginning to finally understand, the one you invented on Friday in my first week of Hogwarts called for the stone to be retrieved by Dumbledore's golden child, the boy who lived making a selfless and noble attempt to save the life of his dying defense teacher, Professor Quirrell. Of course. It was a poetical sort of plot, Harry supposed, but his appreciation of that elegance was being hampered by the surrounding circumstances. 
Then another thought occurred to Harry. Um, you think that this mirror is a trap for you. There is no way beneath the heavens that it is not meant as a trap. That is to say, it's a trap for Lord Voldemort. Only it can't be a trap for him personally. There has to be a general rule that underlies it. Some generalizable quality of Lord Voldemort that triggers it. Without conscious awareness, Harry was frowning hard at the mirror's golden back. As you say. Professor Quirrell was beginning to frown at Harry's frowning. Well, on the first Thursday of this year, the mad headmaster Dumbledore, who I'd just seen incinerate a chicken, told me that I had no chance whatsoever of getting into his forbidden corridor since I didn't know the spell Alohomora. I see. Oh, dear. I wish you had thought to mention this to me a good deal earlier. Neither of them needed to state aloud the obvious, that this bit of reverse-reverse psychology had successfully ensured that Harry would stay the heck away from Dumbledore's forbidden corridor. Harry was still concentrating. Do you think Dumbledore suspects that I am, in his terms, a horcrux of Lord Voldemort? Or, more generally, that some aspects of my personality were copied off Lord Voldemort? Even as Harry asked this aloud, he realized what a dumb question it was, and how much completely blatant evidence he'd already seen that... Dumbledore cannot possibly have missed it. It is not exactly subtle. What else is Dumbledore to think? That you are an actor in a play whose stupid author has never met a real eleven-year-old? Only a gibbering dullard would believe that. Ah... Never mind. The two of them stared at the mirror in silence. Finally, Professor Quirrell sighed. (sighs) I have outwitted myself, I fear. Neither you nor I dare be reflected in this mirror. I suppose I must command Professor Sprout to undo my obliviations of Mr. Knott and Miss Greengrass. You see, the other great difficulty of the mirror is that the rule by which it treats those reflected will disregard external forces, such as false memories or a confundus charm. The mirror reflects only those forces arising from within the person themselves, the states of mind they arrive at through their own choices. So it is said in several places. That is why I had Mr. Knott and Miss Greengrass, believing different stories about why the stone's extraction was necessary, ready to appear before the mirror. Professor Quirrell rubbed at the bridge of his nose. I constructed other stories for other students, ready for me to set into motion with the chosen trigger, but as this day approached, I began to feel pessimistic about the project. Such as Knot and Greengrass still seem worth trying if we cannot think of something better. But I wonder if Dumbledore has tried to construct this puzzle to specifically resist Voldemort's cunning. I wonder if he might have succeeded. If you devise an alternative plan which I approve enough to try, I promise that whatever pawn I send forth shall not be harmed by me, then or ever, nor do I expect to break that promise. 
and I remind you again of the hostages I hold to my failure, both Miss Granger and all the others. Again, they stared at the mirror in silence, the elder Tom Riddle and the younger. I suspect, Professor, Harry said after a time, that your entire class of hypotheses about someone needing to want the stone for good or honest purposes is mistaken. The headmaster wouldn't set a retrieval rule like that. Why? Because Dumbledore knows how easy it is to end up believing that you're doing the right thing when you're actually not. It'd be the first possibility he imagined. Is it truth or trickery that I hear? Am being honest. Professor Quirrell nodded. Then your point is well taken. I'm not sure why you think this puzzle is solvable. Just set a rule like, your left hand must hold a small blue pyramid and two large red pyramids, and your right hand must be squeezing mayonnaise onto a hamster. No, I think not. The legends are unclear what rules can be given, but I think it must have something to do with the mirror's original intended use. It must have something to do with the deep desires and wishes arising from within the person. Squeezing mayonnaise onto a hamster will not qualify as that, for most people. Huh. Maybe the rule is that the person has to not want to use the stone at all. No, that's too easy. The story you gave Mr. Knott solves it. In some ways, you may understand Dumbledore better than I. So now I ask you this. How would Dumbledore use his notion of the acceptance of death to guard this stone? For that, above all, he thinks I cannot comprehend, and he is not far wrong. Harry thought about this for a while, considering several ideas and discarding them. And then, having thought of something, Harry considered remaining silent, before mapping out the obvious part of the future conversation where Professor Quirrell asked him to say in Parseltongue if he'd thought of something. Reluctantly, Harry spoke. Would Dumbledore think that this mirror could reach the afterlife? Could he put the stone into something that he thinks is an afterlife, so that only people who believe in an afterlife can see it? Hmm. Possibly. Yes, there is a certain plausibility to it. Using this setting of the mirror to show people their heart's desires, Albus Dumbledore would see himself reunited with his family. He would see himself united with them in death, wanting to die himself rather than wishing for them to be returned to life. His brother Aberforth, his sister Ariana, his parents Kendra and Percival. It would be Aberforth to whom Dumbledore gave the stone, I think. Would the mirror recognize that Aberforth particularly had been given the stone? Or will any dead person's relative do if that person believes their relative spirit would give them back the stone? Professor Quirrell was pacing in a short circle, keeping well away from Harry and the mirror as he moved. But all that is only one idea. Let us devise another. Harry began to tap his cheek, then stopped abruptly when he realized where he'd picked up that gesture. What if Purnell is the one who put the stone in here? Maybe she keyed the mirror to give the stone only to the person who put it in originally. 
Purnell has lived this long by knowing her limitations. She does not overestimate her own intellect. She is not prideful. If that were so, she would have lost the stone long ago. Purnell will not try to think of a good mirror rule herself. Not when Master Flamel can leave the matter in Dumbledore's wiser hands. But the rule of only returning the stone to the one who remembers placing it also works if Dumbledore himself has placed the stone. It would be a hard rule to bypass, since I cannot simply confund someone into believing that they put in the stone. I would have to create a false stone and a false mirror and arrange the drama. Professor Quirrell was frowning now. But it is still something that Dumbledore would imagine Voldemort being able to arrange, given time. If at all possible, Dumbledore will want to make the key to the stone a state of mind that he thinks I cannot arrange in upon, or a rule that Dumbledore thinks Voldemort can never comprehend, such as a rule involving the acceptance of one's own death. That is why I considered your previous idea plausible. Then Harry had an idea. He was not sure if it was a good idea. It wasn't like Harry had a lot of choice here. Arguendo. We're not sure what's necessary to retrieve the stone. But a sufficient condition should involve Albus Dumbledore, or maybe someone else, in a state of mind where they believe that the Dark Lord has been defeated, that the threat is over, and that it is time to take out the stone and give it back to Nicholas Flamel. We aren't sure which part of that person's state of mind, let's say Dumbledore's, will be the necessary part that he thinks Lord Voldemort can't understand or duplicate. But under those conditions, Dumbledore's entire state of mind will be sufficient. Reasonable. So? The corresponding strategy is to mimic Dumbledore's state of mind under those conditions in as much detail as possible while standing in front of the mirror. And this state of mind must have been produced by internal forces, not external ones. But how are we to get that without legilimency or the confundus charm, both of which would certainly be external? Aha! I see... Professor Quirrell's ice-pale eyes were suddenly piercing. You suggest that I confund myself, as you cast that hex upon yourself during your first day in battle magic, so that it is an internal force and not an external one, a state of mind that comes about through only my own choices. Say to me whether you have made the suggestion with the intention of trapping me, boy. Say it to me in parcel tongue. My mind that you asked to devise strategy may perhaps have been influenced by such an intent. Who knows? Knew you would be suspicious. Ask this very question. Decision is up to you, teacher. I know nothing you do not know about whether this is likely to trap you. Do not call it betrayal by me if you choose this for yourself and it fails. Harry felt a strong impulse to smile and suppressed it. Lovely, said Professor Quirrell, who was smiling. 
I suppose there are some threats from an inventive mind that even questioning in parcel tongue cannot neutralize. End first half of chapter 109. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is The Fall by Ministry. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the conclusion to Chapter 109, Reflections. Reflections.